0: You know, it's such an honor to moderate this important discussion on mental health. And now I actually have the great honor and privilege and I don't know what else to say. I'm so excited because I love speaking with young people. And um, this is what this is all about, right, about students and young folks. So I am so excited to have this opportunity to chat with a student. I'm just going to say her name is Laura, only because I really want her to introduce herself. So. Laura.
1: Hi. So once again, my name is Laura Avila. I am 16 years old. I am a junior here at Southwest High School located in El Central California. So a little bit about myself. Um, I am a Mexican-American first-generation student here in the United States. I immigrated here when I was about eight years old. And from then on, um, I started developing an interest in the medical field ever since I was really, really young. And after coming to Southwest High School and learning about HOSA, Future Health Professionals, which is a club that's dedicated into giving students the opportunities in order to go to the medical field and know more about the careers offered, I just decided, okay, this is for me. And I attended the first meeting. I met awesome people. And now I've been able to be a member for three years and a leader for the club itself for two years.
0: Wow. So when you commit to something, you really commit to something. That's awesome. And um, I think you're going to be such an inspiration for other uh, young women, other young um, Latinx women, so um, as well as just students in general. So thank you for sharing about um, your story a little bit today. So, you know, we're going to be talking about mental health services and supports for students in schools. So from your perspective, what do you think um, is working well in terms of mental health support for students?
1: Well, before I go into that, I would like to explain a little bit of how I got into mental health because you hear HOSA and you just hear medical field, but you don't hear anything mental health related. So how it relates to mental health is that HOSA has a mental health project. And we were one of the pilot schools that led that project. And as of now, um, I helped develop it. And now we have a coalition for student wellness in our campus. So in that, we were able to develop a lot of activities and things in order to get students to know more about mental health and be able to advocate for it. As for how it is important in schools and how it is important to give those services to students, I would say that, um, I'd like to say a lot that mental health is in everything. And that if you want a student to perform well in school, you have to let them know what they can do in order to support themselves before they can pass a test or before they have to go and do that great presentation. So for me, being able to advocate at my school and talk about mental health to other students, it's something that's of high importance because for me, mental health was something that I didn't know about until I came to Southwest and learned about how mental health can be literally in every aspect of your life
0: that is really a great way to put it. Um, A lot of us uh, older advocates, you know, and um, I'm sure I'm hearing it in younger folks too, say, you know, um, there is no health without mental health. And you're really saying that there's kind of no nothing without mental health. Like, how do you go to, how do you do your schoolwork? And how do you get on with your family? And how do you do all of those things if you do not have good mental health? So it sounds really great that you all had this opportunity to um, uh, build something within your school. So, What do you think lawmakers need to know about the kind of supports that students like you might need?
1: Well, I think what lawmakers need to know is that without the resources, us students can't do anything. I live in the Imperial County, which is a severely underserved area in California. We're right next to the Mexicali border. And it's mostly next people. And so we only have one resource center for mental health Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, our school doesn't have enough resources to sometimes be able to get maybe umbrellas or tables for students to sit on or a place where they could go and get resources. And unfortunately, I don't like to say that money is everything because it isn't. The initiative and the drive from students and their ideas is what brings these things to fruition. However, money can allow us to be able to get those resources that we need. Maybe have um, more resources in underserved areas like mine to have more mental health places in which they can go get help where they can come and help our school to develop those plans so lawmakers really need to see that even in our communities there's a lot of students who want to make change but unfortunately because we don't have those resources we can't really do much and also allowing students to have those leadership opportunities if i wasn't given the opportunity to become a host officer I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be in my second mm-hmm. year as a leader and being the chairperson for this new mental health organization on my campus. So I think those two things are the most important things the lawmakers need to see as of now.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. I think um, you are a budding uh, legislator. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, this is fantastic. And again, you know, out of the mouth of youth, you know, we have to pay attention to what our students and our, what our youth are saying. Um, and I'm hearing you say that loud and clear. Is there anything else that um, you think lawmakers need to know or anything else that you want our audience to know about mental health in schools?
1: Well, I want to say to everybody, not just lawmakers, that mental health and teaching it to students is something that we need to do. It's not something that has to be looked at or learned because you have a mental health issue. We like to put it as mental well-being instead of just mental health. And that, like you mentioned, mental health is health. We need to get to a point in which physical health and mental health are treated the same as health. Not just when you have depression or when you have anxiety, or the stigma of, okay, I have a mental health issue. I'm crazy. No, we need to take that away and understand that everyone has mental health. Not everyone has mental issues, but everyone has mental health and everyone needs to take care of that mental health. And even if it's just students like us who are stressing about the test, I had three tests today and I was, I was stressing out about it. So they can go from that all the way to an adult who's stressing about their job or taking care of their children. Like I said, mental health has to be taken care of regardless of age and gender, uh, race or whatever. It has to be something that's universally taught to students and to people and keep working on that to take away that stigma surrounding it.
0: Okay, I have no words other than si se puede. Thank you very much. Thank (laughs) you so much, especially because you've come on a day where you had three tests and now (laughs) you're talking to me. So let's all take a deep breath together. (laughs) <laughs> and say thank you very much to Laura for sharing her thoughts with us and her leadership and her time. Thank you so much. Words of wisdom.
1: Well, Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity today.
0: And joining us now is Senator Connie Leva, who represents the 20th State Senate District. And as the chair of the Senate Education Committee, Senator Leva is a champion for improving California schools. So we are so honored to have her join us today for this virtual conversation. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. Yay. Yay. We get to have this wonderful conversation. I'm so excited. So I'm going to start off by asking just a simple question. (laughs) As the chair of the Senate Education Committee, can you explain a bit about the priorities of the committee and how it positions you and your colleagues to provide leadership and support student behavior health?
2: Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And secondly, let me just say I love and feel so honored that I get to be the chair of Senate Education. There's so much work to be done. And we know that after a year and a half, almost two years of a pandemic, there is so much for us to do for our students regarding mental health. I will tell you that before I was the chair of Senate Education, I sat on the committee and mental health has been an issue and at the forefront for the last seven years, but it really has taken center stage after the pandemic. We do know that there are opportunity gaps and part of the way that we can uh, close those gaps is through mental health, social emotional learning and student re-engagement, which will be critical to help our students get back to where they need to be. Some of the things that will help with this issue is extended instructional time, extended school year, summer school, and one-on-one tutoring. Areas that we can address this and how we will address this is making sure that our students have health counseling, that they have mental health services, they have access to school meal programs, which is in the budget this year, and programs to address trauma and social emotional learning. Uh, And we also know that many families aren't ready to send their children back yet. I totally understand that. My kids are grown, but if my kids weren't grown, I might be a little worried too. Mm-hmm. So we have to realize that distance learning will probably be a big part of our future ongoing.
0: Wow. So what <laughs> aren't you doing?
2: I mean- We're <laughs> trying, on it. We're trying. Yeah,
0: that's amazing. I mean, to hear like, it's it's the whole wrap around for the whole child and families that I, oh, wow, that's just, thank you so much. That's amazing. Yeah. So when you're talking about all of this stuff, what are some of your legislative and budget priorities regarding student behavioral health?
2: Well, what I would like to say, one of the things uh, again, why I love being the chair of Senate Education is my colleagues bring lots of great ideas, and as a chair, I get to help figure out how does all of this fit together, and make sure that we're giving our schools what they need, the resources they need, and also making sure that our children are getting what they need, and we don't have these one-off crazy ideas. Uh, I am a huge fan of school-based health centers and commun- and the community school strategy, and I'm very excited that we have put um, investments in both of those in the budget this year. And I'm also, also interested in exploring ways to set aside a portion of the mental health and substance abuse funds specifically for our youth. And I also think we need to keep thinking about, and this will be for next year, how do we make sure every school, K through 12, high school, well, K through 12, how does every school have a mental health professional at their school? I think it was critical before the pandemic and it's even more critical now. So we've done a lot of good stuff, but we have a lot of work to do.
0: Wow, that's really such a good start. And I love the idea of a mental health professional at every school. I mean, I'm older than dirt. I'm not really, but I'm kind of oldish. Right. And um, you know, thinking back to my school days, what it would have been like to have, you know, somebody there that I could go talk to any time of the day or give a call just to get some support, especially as you say, now during the pandemic, there's so much trauma and That's stress right. and pressure, having somebody right there to go to uh, just makes it so easy and safe. Yes, so I mean. yeah, yeah, I hope that having can get done.
2: Mental health professional and having a school nurse, I'm older too. And I remember at my elementary school, there was always a school nurse. And yeah. now you know school nurses serve two or three or four schools. So LCFF, we, a local control funding formula is good But you have one school district that does one thing, one that does another. How do we make sure our students are getting all of these services? So I hope that's what we can work on next year.
0: Awesome. We know separate is not always equal. So it would be nice to have everybody to have the same thing. That's amazing. So what um, issues or bills have come before the Senate Education Committee in the last year regarding the intersection of education and behavioral health that have particularly impacted you?
2: Well, again, like I said, this is the fun part of my job is seeing all of these bills uh, come through. But one of your sponsored bills actually caught my attention, SB 224, which was authored by Senator Portantino. And this bill requires schools that offer one or more health education um, classes for pupils in middle school and high school. Kind of gets to that idea of making sure everyone has access that we were just talking about. Um, And that these courses would be in mental health. I'm sorry that the scope of the instruction was limited, but it's a step. And sometimes we have to make that first step and then come back and do better next year. Also, AB 586, which was authored by Assemblymember O'Donnell, um, it was not heard in my committee because the provisions of the bill were put into the budget. So that's something that happens too, and that's okay. Um, what the bill would have done and is now in the budget is it will establish the school health demonstration project to expand comprehensive health and mental health services to students by providing schools with intensive instruction um, and committees that can do this work. So that one is very important as well. Um, Also, the budget requires the Department of Education to appoint a school nurse consultant to work with schools and school nurses to promote school nursing and school health programs. So I hope this helps us get to that, a nurse at every school uh, issue. And the provisions of this bill had been in AB 285 by Assemblymember Holden, but the bill was also absorbed into the budget, which is good. There's, there's lots that I love, but I know our time is limited.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, those are great. Those are great. And so when we're talking about all of this, what are the other policy and or budget ideas that the state might consider to support young people who've been historically underserved, like youth of color, uh, youth who are experiencing homelessness in their families, foster youth and LGBTQ plus?
2: Really, really good question and such an important issue. Um, Again, I will say that I'm very interested in exploring ways to set aside a portion of mental health and substance abuse funds for our young people, for our students. Um, the budget does provide $50 million for schools to use to support the creation or expansion of ethnic studies course offerings. Uh, the legislature recent, recently passed AB 101 by assembly member Medina. It's sitting on the governor's desk and we hope that he signs it. Uh, this is a bill that has come before me almost every year that I've been in the Senate. And I think it's so critically important because i believe in my heart that when we learn about each other we will realize we have more in common than we don't and we will also understand that just because someone is different from us doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them they bring something different to the table it can make us all better and smarter so i'm very hopeful that this bill will get signed into law the budget also um, provides 10 million dollars for anti-bias education. It's a grant program. Um, and this grant program will prevent, address, and eliminate racism and bias in schools. We hope such an important issue. We want to make sure that our schools are inclusive and supportive of everyone. So those things really excite me because we, um, I think we sometimes forget that school's not always a safe place for everyone and that everyone doesn't always feel included. And I hope that in the years to come that I get to hopefully still be Senate uh, chair of Senate education. I can help make that a little bit better. Um, so our kids, kids can learn and be accepted for who they are.
0: Yeah. It's really hard for kids of color, kids who are experiencing homelessness or yeah. LGBTQ, then to also have um, behavioral health challenges. So getting all of that support and understanding, educating our, our teachers and um, educating each other as kids um, about these issues can be so helpful for, for children. So I just want to thank you for all that you're doing. I'm just sitting here. I've got like little goosebumps. I'm just so excited. And um, yeah, any last words for us before we wrap up?
2: You know what? I would just say thank you for all that you do. Please keep doing what you're doing. We are all in this together. And uh, Team Leva. we like to say when we work together, we win together. So keep up the great work and thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. We'll do a high five together for Team Leva.
2: <laughs> Thank you oh God, so I love much. That.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Joining us today is Assemblywoman Cork Silva, who represents California's 65th Assembly District. Voters first elected her in 2012. She's a staunch advocate for mental health and her constituents and Californians as a whole. So we are so thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with her today. So I'd like to welcome Assemblywoman Cork Silva. And i'm so glad you're wearing green because green is the color of mental health so welcome
3: well thank you for having me and as you know i uh believe that this topic is uh so important and one of the things that i think that i'm really going to uh, say more than a few times is as we focus on physical health we need to do the same with mental health
0: Amen. All right. That's where I, you know, two thumbs up, snap, snap, clap, clap. That's what I like to do when I'm in total agreement. So what draws you to advocate for mental health and substance use policy in California legislature, uh, particularly for young people?
3: Well, I've been an educator for 30 years, uh, actually teaching the younger ones in uh, third and fourth grade mostly, but as a legislator as well. And as a mother, I have four young adults from the ages of 24 to 32. And so between all of those roles and seeing firsthand, not only in my own family, as many of us know, uh, most families have uh, somebody in their family that really needs uh, not only support under uh, mental health guidance, but um, family support. So it's an important issue.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I did a lot of work with uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, was president of their board and on the NAMI California board. And so thank you so much for speaking that out about and doing um, legislative work around that issue. So from your perspective, what can we do to assist schools with the needs around behavioral health services, particularly as it relates to historically underserved communities, including youth of color, uh, folks who experience homeless, uh, foster youth, and LGBTQ plus youth?
3: Well, first I think access. Access is one of the most difficult things for families to understand of how do they navigate the mental health system. So if you think about your school systems and you think about mental health systems, and even the health system. They're not always the easiest systems to navigate, especially if your family speaks another language. So having access is not only important for families, but for the older the students are, high school students in particular, being able to uh, even get some type of support on campus, whether it be from a counselor or a telehealth professional. But I will uh, note that some schools have counselors, but they're really focused on academic counseling, Mm -hmm. not uh, counseling for issues you might be suffering from. So I'm really very much, if there's been any, I guess if you want to say good news from the pandemic is that it's showing us that what we're doing now through Zoom, through um, telehealth, Uh, that uh, there can be access that uh, students can get right on from the the campus themselves.
0: Yeah, excellent. And it's such an incredibly important time in a young person's life. That's uh, generally when mental health and substance use conditions will show up is uh, kind of when they're uh, in school and in high school or a little bit below and ensuring that our our family members know what to do and where to access and how to access. So what kind of legislation um, can you talk to us about your legislation this year and what these bills might mean for student um, behavioral health?
3: Uh, yes I've I've the last two years have spent uh, quite a bit of time working on really combining the idea of focusing on homelessness and focusing on housing and all too often we hear that uh, you know people that are homeless have mental health conditions which we certainly know can be true but we also know that, Uh, Many times, again, they're not treated. Uh, They can't get appointments. If they can get appointments, they have to. Sometimes they don't have transportation. Uh, Sometimes it's going from building to building, from city to city. So one of the focuses that we've had is making sure that with our mental health system, that they will treat co-occurring conditions. And this means that, uh, for example, oh my gosh, my dogs are going to be really obnoxious right now. Uh, They're in
0: agreement with you. So they want to show up with with agreement. It's all good. That's
3: right. So what I'm saying is that, for example, somebody might be suffering from an addiction issue. And if they were to go and get help, they might say, we're just going to work on the addiction." Mm-hmm. And then somebody might be suffering from a mental health addiction. And they say, well, we can just treat the mental health issue. But we know that many people suffer sometimes from three uh, occurring issues, which would be your physical health, your mental health and an addiction. And they've been sent from one place to another. So what our legislation did was say that uh, through mental health funds, you can treat co-occurring Uh, conditions and it's clarified it for the practitioners out there so we can stop this pushing people from one place to another
0: this is when I say again, snap, snap, clap, clap, yes, spill the tea, yes, all the things that that we say now around uh, such agreement about those uh, uh, critical um, silos that need to be uh, just taken down to help people and meet them where they are. So thank you very much. And so when it comes to behavioral health, what other policy ideas are you thinking about for the next year and beyond?
3: Well, again, one of the things that I think, uh, if a parent uh, has a child who wakes up with a fever or a sore throat, we think about calling a doctor if if they have access, again, access. Uh, But if a a child wakes up with anxiety or feeling isolated or feeling depressed, but a lot of times, They are not thinking that they need to access help for their young adult. And even, sadly, sometimes uh, even younger than young adults, sometimes even um, from elementary school. So we too often wait, and we wait thinking, well, they'll feel better. So, again, one of the focuses I want to have is to, to reduce this stigma that getting help is somehow shines on the family like you didn't do the right thing. We know that everybody needs help, whether it's to lose weight, whether it's uh, to uh, focus on eating disorders, all of these require people who are experts in the field. And so it's really to start to get parents more educated that they should seek help for their children and young adults, but also to empower young adults, whether they're foster, Children, students, that uh, we want to be there for them as a society because we, the worst thing that we have seen in this pandemic is this uh, very large increase in suicides.
0: Yes, yes. So thank you very much. You're you're talking about access, meeting people where they are, breaking down the silos, supporting both the family and the youth. And uh, most importantly, you got to start with focusing on that stigma so that people can reach out and ask for the help when they need it, especially for young children. And as you get older, um, you know, as a young adult or high school student, how do you reach out yourself that getting help is OK because you're going to get it for anything else? So, Thank you for all that you're doing and the legislation that you're, uh, you know, uh, working on. Is there Are there any last um, comments that you have before we wrap up?
3: Um, I would just tell some of uh, your viewers out there uh, that, you know, your life really does mean something and to know uh, that if you don't feel that somebody cares, there really are listening ears out there. There's people uh, that do want to help and uh, that we hope that uh, you'll definitely pick up a phone. I'm really a believer in face-to-face and to talking. Yes, we have a lot of technology and that certainly helps, but uh, really understanding that people want to help. Uh, We definitely have to do a better job of getting people trained to work in these fields um, and people of color because we know that that there is, uh, we need more people, professionals that can really understand families. That need more support.
0: Thank you so much. And again, the dogs are in total agreement. and Oh are my gosh. To support I am you. so sorry about that. This is the life sorry. of 2022,
4: 2021,
0: and 2022. So thank you, thank you so much, Assemblywoman um, Park Silva, for joining us today. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much. Great to see you.
0: I am so excited to introduce this next panel. And they're joining us today to have an in-depth conversation surrounding the student mental health crisis and how these organizations are working towards a brighter future for all students. I'm so pleased to introduce John Goldfinger, who is the CEO of Didi Hirsch Mental Health Services, Josh Leonard, who is the CEO of East Bay Agency for Children, Allison Beckwar, who is the president and CEO of Lincoln Families, and Jenna Nunez, who is the program coordinator for the Merced Office of Sierra Vista Child and Family Services. So thank you all for joining us. I'm really looking forward to um, having this conversation with everyone. So I am going to start with uh, uh, John from DD Hirsch. Can you tell us a little bit about DD um, Hirsch um, Health Services and how your amazing programs support young people?
5: Sure thing, and thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here with you, Karis. Exciting to be here with all of you to talk about this very important topic, especially for me as a pediatrician. You know, I come from this, uh, from the perspective of researching and trying to understand childhood trauma, adverse childhood experiences. And we know we've been living through a time with an enormous uh, burden of trauma in our youth, in our families. And so thrilled to be here to talk about this and talk about what we can do, hopefully all of us can do for young people. So Dee Hirsch serves about 160,000 lives annually with comprehensive, or what we call whole person mental health care services and crisis care services in Los Angeles and Orange County, including on our 24-7 suicide prevention crisis lines. And those actually extend throughout all of Southern California. Through our outpatient and residential facilities, it's about 40% of those we serve are youth and young adults and about 20% of all the young people we serve are through school-based services. And in the communities that we serve, it's really important to point out that we have predominantly Latinx and Black clients from families dealing with daily inequities in their healthcare, in their educational system, in their financial insecurity, and a lot of cross-cultural issues, immigration challenges, and various traumas that we can talk about. Many of these young people we find don't have a role model or a mentor and generally feel hopeless about their future, but especially today. since I joined Didi Hirsch, actually became the CEO in the middle of the pandemic, we are increasingly focused on what we can do different, perhaps, for young people. The way young people receive services in our systems of yesteryear are just not cutting it for them today. We want to make sure that we're addressing with a trauma-informed approach and a really uh, focused approach to go where they are. It's not necessarily our practice, it's wherever they want. We had teens want to produce a movie for their friends about how they feel uh, in the stigma of mental illness and how, what they would want them, their friends to know. So we built that program call it Glow Productions, the kids wanted to call it, so they could really shine. And that's what we do. We go where and how we're needed because we see so much trauma, so much PTSD, high ACEs burden uh, throughout the pandemic. And another good example, In about August of 2020, the federal government asked us to address the fact that on the crisis lines of suicide lifeline, about 60,000 young people were texting with no response. And so we started to text back the first day, 10 year old ingested her mother's whole bottle of antidepressants. We sent EMS and saved her life. A week later, 14 year old had a loaded gun in her hand. We sent support. We got her to put it away and save her life. And this is what we do every day, and we're proud
0: Wow, thank you so much for sharing and for doing the work that you're doing. And so for you, um, Josh, can you talk about um, um, EBAC's school-based mental health programs? They're really incredible. Can you tell us a little bit about them?
4: Yeah, happily. EBAC is an Alameda County-based uh, nonprofit organization we have a continuum of different programs providing mental health supports and other family support services to vulnerable and marginalized kids and families as you indicated uh, school-based services is being based at schools is one of our primary strategies so um we have different types of programs there we have mental health supports that we provide within special special education classroom family resource centers um And we have therapists that are stationed at about 44 schools in seven school districts. So from the vantage point of kids and families, I don't think they necessarily see our staff as EBAC staff. They're just part of the school community. They're embedded there. Uh, And for us, this is a really important engagement strategy, being a part of the school community. Um, John mentioned this, but uh, access is a really important thing and being in a place where kids and families already are at is very, very important. Uh, we're also um, much better situated to be able to identify early needs and intervene in a way that uh, actually is impactful. Um, so we're, we're very, very proud of the work that we've done. Um, we have a, a multicultural staff with multilingual capacity uh, that are uh, adept at being able to, to connect uh, and form trusting relationships with kids and families them work through challenges they're having. Um, I mentioned before, we also have family resource centers. So we do have the ability to help families with material needs that also uh, are incredibly impactful.
0: Wow, thank you. Wow, that is, hearing that they're therapists right there in the school, that's pretty cool. And they're like, not in their white jackets, they're part of the community, so that's even cooler. So Allison, um, can you tell us about Lincoln and the wonderful work that you all are doing to support youth mental health? particularly as it pertains to um, the programs that you're currently offering in uh, schools in your region.
6: Absolutely, and thanks for having me, Karis. Um, So uh, Lincoln is an Oakland-based organization that's been around for 138 years, and we are providing services in Alameda and Contra Costa counties. Our mission is to disrupt cycles of poverty and trauma and empower families to build strong futures. And we do that through a variety of programming, I would say primarily school and community-based mental health services, like Josh, many family resource centers, and also some literacy programs. And you know, everything that John and Josh just said really resonated. I would also say one of the beautiful things about doing school-based work is that it is destigmatizing of um, receiving mental health services. Mental health services should be a right. And when we embed it in the school setting. That's just one of the ways we take off some of those layers of, um, of stigmatization. So Lincoln is in approximately 50 schools. Um, and like Josh said, we are co-located. I think many of our staff would identify more strongly with their, their school than saying they're a Lincoln staff. And we love that. We love that they're embedded. We love that they're part of the school community, um, because I think that's where change is really going to happen. That... When someone's not seen as someone who pops in or does, you know, pull out, but they're really there um, as part of the school community and in it together with the school staff and and students and families. So. Any one of our schools really has a different flavor depending on what are the particular needs. And so we could be providing mental health services. We might be providing early childhood mental health supports down the street at the local preschool. We might be working with the SART process or truancy court to help children and families who are having a hard time getting to school for whatever reason, figure out what those barriers are and then passing them off to, school staff who can then support them once they're coming to school more regularly. So it's really also kind of a whatever it takes approach.
0: Fantastic. Where were you when I was in school? So, <laughs> so uh, next let's um, talk to Jenna. And Jenna, can you tell us about uh, Sierra, Sierra Vista Child and Family Services and just the awesome work that you're doing uh, to support youth mental health in your um, school-based programs?
7: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So Sierra Vista is a nonprofit, and we are located in both Merced and Stanislaus County. I oversee the um, the Merced County offices. And so our school-based clinicians um, are housed on on campus, similar to what Josh had mentioned. We're at five different school districts. Um, We provide crisis support, individual counseling, group counseling. In addition to that, we really want to support the families as well. So we'll do home visits, and we'll go out to the home. We also have stigma events. That we host. So we notice there's a big stigma um, related to accessing mental health services. Being on campus has really reduced that. So in addition to that, we host stigma events on campus where we include school leadership, we include all of the clubs on campus, um, and we're able to connect students pretty immediately to different clubs and sports on campus because we know that once students are connected. Um, there is um, a more likelihood that they'll be more successful, both academically and socially.
0: So um, each of you have talked a little bit about stigma. Since we're talking about stigma, I'm gonna go over to Dawn and I'm gonna ask about uh, stigma. One of the things we know is it is a major obstacle for students accessing mental health um, and uh, mental health services and it's also associated with mental illness by their peers and community. Like it's just really tough for people, right? So how can we address this? We've heard a little bit about this, but what more can we be doing to address this so that young people feel comfortable reaching out for help when they need it?
5: The the first thing I would say is we tend to think of stigma in terms of interpersonal stigma, which is uh, how individuals feel about mental illness uh, or are made to feel by others when there's actually other types of stigma. And I think the first thing that we have to really focus on more in our arena is with with partners throughout Health and Human Services, there's still structural and systemic stigma. There are still underlying financial drivers of why these kids can't access care that are essentially discriminating against those kids. And there's a reason there's no money there, and there might be more money for pediatric care, for example. So structural stigma is critical. The kids can't see it. Your audience can't see it, but I can show you contracts that you know most uh, people would not take that contract in a business, and we are largely forced to in our line of work. And so there's really, really important structural stigma. In terms of the interpersonal stigma of kids, I think it's really, you know, how much we can entreat their peers to be there to support them. How much can we get like with the Globe Productions, you know, example I gave, for kids by kids. So that kids are talking about this. We talk about it as adults. And I think one of the most wonderful things about my job is when I hear kids talk about something and I think I I did not have that wherewithal to speak about my own mental health that way when I was that age. You know, to me, that's inspiring. That that's what lets me know and have faith that the next generation will solve these access issues because these kids get it and they're not too afraid to talk about it. Certainly, we need training and education for the kids, for the teachers, for the school counselors, for anybody who engages them uh, in their care. And lastly, on our crisis lines, you know, we need to really be thinking innovatively in terms of access. Some kids' stigma may be picking up the phone, right? If I'm that kid who like, I have a panic attack and I have to call somebody, that might feel not okay but I can text, I'm okay with that, right? Meeting them where they are is also about what types of media are we engaging them on uh, that they feel more comfortable with because they feel less stigmatized.
0: That's awesome, thank you. And I'm I'm so glad you brought up the, the idea that there's more than one kind of stigma. And so perhaps we should be saying stigmas rather than stigma so that we're addressing all those different types of stigma. So I'm gonna to turn to something around, around COVID. I mean, you know, this is, this is the time, right? We're in the middle of a pandemic, maybe we're coming out of it. So um, uh, Josh, can you talk a little bit about how COVID-19 and the stress that students have experienced over the last year, a year and a half, and have impacted the demand for your school-based mental health services?
4: Yeah, so I think we're seeing that in, in some different ways that continue to emerge. Um, none of them I think are particularly surprising. In all of our schools, we have kids that have lost caregivers. And so that is incredibly intense, and there are um, lots of needs around that. I think we're also seeing the impact of a year and a half of social isol- isolation at our school sites. Um, we are seeing more conflicts than pre-pandemic, more fights, um, and difficulty with kids navigating interpersonal challenge, uh, again, which makes sense. Um, Lots of kids uh, were in their room on Zoom for a long time, and uh, they're not used to this. Um, They're also coming back to an environment uh, in which there continues to be heightened levels of anxiety. People continue to be fearful about COVID. Many schools are struggling with staffing shortages and incredible stress amongst the teachers and administration, and this uh, rubs off on the kids and the entire population. So all of these um, uh, are things that we're seeing showing up with the kids that we're working with and we're providing them support with that. Uh, I would also say that there was a group of kids that sort of um, fell through the cracks the previous 18 months when schools were shut down. So uh, all of us are describing that we have programs that are predicated on this idea that we have visibility uh, in schools and as needs surface, they're seen and referrals happen. And unfortunately, uh, many of the kids with the highest level of need dropped out, right? They, they weren't uh, showing up to the the Zoom school. There wasn't eyes on them. And so they weren't referred for services. And now they, uh, again, are connecting, which is a great thing, but there's a lot there.
0: Yeah, what kind of um, innovative programs in school-based mental health have you been doing at EBAC during this last year and a
3: half?
4: Yeah, so it was certainly uh, interesting and we spent lots of time developing models that were optimally impactful uh, and they were predicated upon doing in uh, face-to-face services at schools. And so we quickly had to pivot uh, to telehealth and trying to figure out other strategies for engagement. Uh, and I think in some ways uh, doing this validated the critical importance of proximity, right, face-to-face services, but I think we also saw in certain cases that telehealth can be helpful and impactful. So uh, I think Allison was describing, maybe someone else, uh, in terms of texting, that for some kids, maybe it was John, sorry, uh, for some kids that may be a more comfortable way to begin opening up, and so we're integrating that more into our service now. One of the great things about school-based is that's where kids are at but sometimes it can be challenging to engage families from the school side and i think we found with the telehealth tool uh that we're more able to connect more consistently with family uh, and there's also something beautiful truthfully about uh being able to visit families in their homes through telehealth right and it's a bit more intimate relationship that can be developed. I think we've also integrated uh, out of necessity, but online video games with younger kids as a way to connect that, uh, frankly, I don't think my staff would have uh, prior to the pandemic thought uh, uh, to be a meaningful intervention. But uh, in some ways, and for some kids, it has been incredibly impactful. And we're going to continue to figure out how to integrate that into our practice uh even now that we don't have to
0: you say games i have a have a certification in geek therapeutics which is like hilarious to people but it's things like playing dungeons and dragons and video games and how do you do that in a therapeutic way i do it as Mm -hmm. a peer i don't i'm not a therapist just Mm -hmm. to be clear okay so (laughs) so thank you for for all that that's just uh really uh, great information but you did say something about people falling through the cracks so i want to turn to allison and ask Mm -hmm. about from your perspective What can we do to assist schools with the needs around those behavioral health uh, services, especially as it relates to historically underserved communities, including youth of color, people, uh, youth who are experiencing homelessness, foster youth, LGBTQ plus youth, because we've seen the the fallout from COVID uh, and the disparities for a lot of these communities.
6: Absolutely. So uh, I might go on here. So feel free to cut me off (laughs) because I have lots of ideas. Well, in, just in what Josh was talking about um, with some of the ways in which kids were falling through the cracks, um, one of the ways we had to pivot, we have a whole program that was predicated on truancy court. Well, no one was getting sent to truancy court. And let's pause for a moment. Why are we waiting for kids to be sent to truancy court in the first place? So, uh, you know, we really started having conversations with schools about, uh, t- with administrators, who are you worried about? who have you not seen on calls and we just we just started to pivot our county funder was supportive of that that we said we're gonna we're gonna go find the kids who are who aren't showing up that the teachers aren't hearing from so that was I just want to show that that's another way we need to constantly be thinking about why we're doing what we're doing um, and quite frankly I'd like to hold on to that that we don't wait till kids end up at truancy court before the services kick in i think there are a number of things that we can be doing to support the schools i think one of the ways um, where we start is in the cost process coordinated service teams or care teams they all have different names and flavors depending on the school you're at but you know we have seen at a number of our schools when there isn't a robust and thoughtful cost process we see black boys disproportionately referred for um mental health services, because of implicit bias, because of interpretation of behaviors. And so when we can set up a really great cost process and we're looking for early indicators um, and we're looking for both internalizing and externalizing behaviors, we can really make sure that kids who are in need of support get it and get it for the Get it for the right reasons, not um, for someone else's idea of what what the right reason is. So that's, I think, one of the best ways we can start is like, what are we setting up for even a system of of identifying and supporting um, youth when they need it? John said something about uh, kids, uh, kids by kids, or kids helping kids by kids by four. Yeah, kids, yeah. kids
3: by kids.
6: Thank you, John. Nothing yeah, Four kids analysis, by kids. kids. In my in my head, I was at the same time saying for parents by parents, especially at the Mm -hmm. elementary school level. Um, For those of us who do family resource centers um, where there are then hubs that are again, helping to destigmatize getting help. Because one of the beautiful things about family resource centers is that every caregiver can both get help and give help. And so there's just an automatic network of support that's created. And so I think that having you know and quite frankly in 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 schools where there's more resources this is called the PTA you know um frankly but um but uh an FRC can be this amazing um force within a school um and really again be a hub for families to get what they need um last thing i'll say is around uh what we're doing for kids who are in foster care. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of conversations in districts. Usually a large district will have liaisons for kids who are foster um, foster involved. But what I think is often left um, out of the conversation is What is happening for the majority of kids who aren't living with their biological parent who are not in the foster care system? They are with an informal kin caregiver. And I think it is critically important that we're trying to figure out how to support those families, because so many of these grannies and aunties and uncles are stepping up and supporting and yet don't get nearly the supports they need to do that. We were working with a school district that we were talking to, and they had a foster care liaison. And I asked them how many um, kin caregivers they they had in their district. And they said, we don't have any. And so we asked them, could you just start asking a few key questions with families when they're coming in the door? Suddenly there were 300 kin families in the district. And so um, many of whom were completely overwhelmed and did not know how to support uh, their grandchild or niece or nephew. So those are just a few of the ideas, I think, of ways that we can be supporting the schools.
0: Wow, thank you. Thank you so much. And yes, I let you go on because I'm actually, <laughs> I'm gonna, and this is why, because I'm going to turn to Jenna, and I want to ask Jenna about um, the rural areas, because that's kind of, you know, um, people that you're primarily serving, the students in the rural and underserved parts of, your, of the state. So is there anything that you'd like to add about um, factors that have impact, you know, how you're doing outreach and engaging folks and these uh, students and the and families in this
7: area? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the communities um, in Merced County are very small, very tight knit. Everybody knows everybody. And so because of that, a lot of families are not going to go outside of their community to look for services or to look for resources. So when this new agency comes into their school, um, everybody's kind of leery, you know, who is it? Can we trust them? They talk to teachers. Can we trust this new this new clinician on campus? Um, and so we really utilize what's within the community to to outreach. We go to local clinics, we utilize the school system, we utilize the teachers on campus. Um, We really utilize what's already there so that we can build the trust with the families and so that we can open up services in that manner. Um, A lot of the counties or a lot of the the cities are, are, like I said, really small, um, and there's just a lack of resources Within Merced County, you can drive an hour and still be in the same county. So a lot of families are not even willing to go to another clinic within the same county because it's such a far drive, right? And due to cost and and working, a lot of these families have two income households. Parents can't take time off work. So we really try to utilize going to them, um, going to where they're at and meeting them where they're at so that we can um, outreach and provide information. Regarding mental health services and really normalize it, destigmatize it. Um, meet parents in their home. Meet parents out at the community. We'll meet parents at Wendy's or Carl's Jr. and just say, "Hey, you just, you know, had a mini therapy, had a mini therapy session right here, and it wasn't so bad." Um, so really, you know, just making it as normal as possible so that they feel comfortable accessing the service.
0: Yeah, great, great. I'm going to come back to you in a second about um, SB 224, but before I do that, kind of want to jump over to John and um, ask John a little bit more to go a little bit more in depth in what he's seeing in the field related to COVID-19 and the disparate impact it's had uh, on students, particularly students of color, LGBT uh, plus youth, et cetera. So can you talk about what you're seeing in the field and what you believe we can do to help those most impacted, if there's anything extra you want to add in?
5: Sure. You know, I think the first thing we have to consider is that Black, Latinx and LGBTQ youth identifying youth were already at higher risk. You know, the trauma of systemic racism and the trauma of isolation or being shunned by your family in the case of those who might identify differently, these things are tremendous, tremendous drivers essentially of mental illness without a pandemic, right? and then you layer on the pandemic. So, you know, it's not surprising as was said, a lot of these kids because in COVID, uh, black and brown communities essentially had higher death rates, right? Now you have those families, those kids disproportionately impacted by a loss because, you know, they may or may not be disproportionately cared for by older relatives. Right, or older caregivers, as was shared, that may increase their risk of a loss. And then you have everything that happened with George Floyd's murder. So what we've seen uh, is significant increases in depression, anxiety, hopelessness, social anxiety. We talked about getting back to in person, the kids are you know concerned about. And there have been more suicides, unfortunately. And of all of all, you know, kids 10 to age, 10 to 18 years old but especially in BIPOC and communities and LGBTQ plus identifying youth. And so it's, it's, it's very upsetting. Most of the data indicates that we're basically getting there a little, too little, too late. And, and that's actually one of the reasons why I'm very proud that 988 and the bringing of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline into the 21st century with chat and text Which is the predominant method the youth prefer. Uh, And we even see maybe there may be gender and race and ethnicity differences too in who prefers chat and text. Really interesting early data, but it appears that this modernization of the National Suicide Lifeline is uh, increasing equity. And then on top of that, we also recently launched a 24 7 campaign with the LAPD to ensure that. Officers are kept out of situations where black boys predominantly would be at risk and the you know, entire communities could be traumatized. And so now, 24-7, the LAPD is transferring calls to DD Hirsch, 988, making sure that that officer never has to be ar- arriving. And I'll tell you, more black kids, more Latinx kids on those calls or families of those kids than on the regular crisis line. So equity is happening now with that partnership
0: wow that's great that's great and can't wait for the entire rollout of 988 um so i'm going to talk about uh oh actually i was going to ask allison another question and then we'll move to sb224 so um, um often when a child needs mental health intervention families and or caregivers may be at a loss of how to proceed so we've been talking about lots of different stuff here but how do we proceed with some of these things if uh, we're not really quite sure so they don't know what resources are available to them so sometimes they feel super duper helpless so what are um, ways that families can get involved with their child's care
5: this is the
6: beauty of school-based mental health right we we are, Embedded in the school, so it is easier to get information. Families don't have to seek out. I know when I've tried to get my own therapy or for other family members, trying to schedule with a clinic, is quite a process. And so, um, having staff that um, the school can let parents know about um, is is critical. So just just the presence of mental health professionals on school campuses, I know. Lincoln does this. I'm sure a lot of the other agencies on this call do this, but there's a lot of um, social emotional learning workshops for caregivers. The research that's come out of Dr. Nadine Burke Harris's work with um, ACEs Aware and Stress Busters, um, I know we're just offering like every month at our schools, there's a Stress Buster workshop that parents can can drop in. So again, that comes back to the destigmatizing, that comes back to the normalizing of it. So I think that, you know, those kind of workshops, we do a lot of like developmental, you know, ages and stages, what's normal, maybe really annoying that your kid's doing, but normal. Um, and what and what is maybe more cause for concern. Certainly, you know, John was talking about suicidal ideation, um, you know, helping helping parents with that. But I also know for for all the school-based mental health providers I know, the staff make themselves available for caregivers when they walk in the door to the school um, for a student who's struggling who isn't, you know, necessarily our our client. And so that's um, that's just that's part of the work and why we're there, so that those um, those moments can happen that sometimes organically need to occur and
0: wouldn't just happen on its own. So now I'm going to turn to Jenna. Now it's the SB224 question. and Why am I asking it? Because Allison started talking about info. Who needs the info? How do you get the info? Info about what? I'm a kid. What the heck is mental health? Do I have mental health? Do I have a mental illness? What do I know? So SB224, a California Alliance-sponsored bill, would bring mental health education to students. Um, This piece of legislation is currently on the governor's desk waiting on his signature. So what about this bill speaks to you and why do you believe the governor should sign it?
7: So I'm very excited about this bill. Um, I think this is going to totally normalize um, having conversations about mental health. It's going to bring education to schools um, at all levels, elementary, middle, and high school. Um, It's going to let children know signs and symptoms of mental health. What is mental health? Um, is it okay to be feeling this way? What does anxiety look like? What does depression look like? Um, and I think that's going to trickle down to the parents because this is going to be a more normal topic of conversation in schools, like any other subject. So I think the talk around mental health is going to become a little bit more normal too, just like any other subject. I think a lot of our teachers are having to be counselors in the moment, counselors right on on campus in the classroom. And a lot of them struggle with that because that's not, you know, that that wasn't the job that they intended to take, right, was to also deal with all of these mental health concerns. But I think being able to have this information in the classroom is also going to help the teachers identify, right? If something's going on with with one of their students, they can identify that early. We've had students, you know, high school age students come to us and say, you know, since eight years old, I've been dealing with anxiety and panic attacks and i just didn't know anything was wrong with me. So imagine at 8 years old that 8-year-old can now identify this is not okay, you know, i need help and they're able to say that and they're able to get that help early on. So i think this is um huge for for mental health. i think we're able to now take a proactive approach instead of a reactive approach, which is unfortunately what we've had to do just given um, the stigma around mental health and and, um, and the lack of information that the families and students have been given. So I think, wow. I'm, like I said, I'm excited for this and I think it's really a big step towards um, destigmatizing mental health conversations.
0: Excellent. So I'm going to ask you also about um, that schools often struggle in their ability to fully support students that are going through a mental health crisis. So, um, Jenna, can you um, talk to us about how partnerships between mental health providers and schools actually benefit students?
7: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, again, you know, decreasing that stigma that's number one. We are on campus, our, our clinicians are on campus five days a week. They're housed at the school. Um, they re- there's so much more access to mental health services for the students. Um, they don't just have, you know, a once a week uh, therapy session. Wednesdays at 2 p.m., you know, we're readily available for them Monday through Friday. And a lot of the time students do come in multiple times per week because they know, you know, somebody is there to help them in the moment. Um, We've also noticed that more mental health crises have occurred or have been identified since we've been on campus. Um, And I think that's because staff are feeling a little bit more comfortable. Um, School staff are feeling more comfortable having those conversations with students. Um, Instead of just seeing, you know, the student in the corner kind of isolating and really ignoring it, they feel a little bit more empowered to go and talk to that student. And because they know that there's a next step, they know that there's help on campus. They can walk them directly to the mental health counselor and really get that access early on. I think parents are also more willing to accept mental health services on campus. Uh, Like I said, a lot of the families here in Merced County are two income households and so both families work they can't afford to take time off Um, and so knowing that they don't have to they don't have to take time off to take their son or daughter to another appointment Um, it's easily it's readily available to them on campus the mental health education and support is there Uh, I think that's also um, a big factor in in accessing those services and I think students are just feeling more comfortable as well Um, so you're slowly starting to destigmatize conversations around mental health And really, students are able to access the service like it was, you know, any other service. You know, you get sick, you go visit a nurse, Um, you're feeling anxious, you'll go see your counselor, you need to switch your math class, you'll go see your academic counselor. So it's just another part of a service that that the school provides.
2: Oh,
0: fantastic. So here we are, we're going to be wrapping it up soon. But before we do that, I would like to give uh, everybody a chance to have that One last thing that they would like to say that maybe they didn't get in, and I will start with John.
5: I have to say, why do you always start with me? I don't know if that's. I will not start with John. I'm (laughs) just. I will start with someone else. (laughs) You know, I, I, the one last thing that I would say is thank God kids are resilient, and I think as a pediatrician we know that the patient is often largely the parent, not the child, and. As we think about youth and we continue to see the Newsom administration invest monumental amounts of money in youth mental health. And we're including, I included that ACEs Aware of which, I'm an advisor to this Office of the Surgeon General and and all the youth mental health initiatives rolling out. It's really gonna be important to wrap around services around the family and, and, and really understand that, you know, it's not just one thing, it's not just education, it's not just services, it's not just the stigma, it's not just this, it's everything under the lens that mental health is health. This is as important as the kids' asthma, their obesity. And so those investments and all the work that we do should continue and we should partner with the rest of healthcare rather than have ours kind of seem like a fringe service. What we do is just as important to these kids' lives We know that hopefully these investments and all the great work you're hearing about today will show the rest of healthcare, Medi-Cal, commercial plans and everyone, we're as worthy of your investment as anyone treating any physical illness.
7: Thank you. Um, So I will jump to Jenna. Um, So I am just really excited to hear this conversation um, and everybody be on a similar page um, with the importance of mental health, especially in schools, bringing it to where the families are at. Uh, like it was said earlier, it really needs to be a systems approach. We need to look at it as a as a system as a whole, not just, you know, for the individual child, not just for the individual uh, parent or caregiver, but really that whole system. And so once we look at that whole system, provide support to the whole system, the family system, the community system, school systems, then I think that's when we're going to see a big impact um, and a big change. And I think we're getting there. I think conversations are are starting i think people are really starting to see the impact that mental health has you know both negative and positive untreated undiagnosed and then also what happens when when we are able to see those signs early on and really take on um those services at an earlier age um, so I, i'm excited i'm excited to see what the future holds um i really think everybody is uh, on the same page
4: great and josh before i came to ebac uh, about eight years ago i worked for 20 years Uh, primarily with older adolescents in the foster care system and the probation system. Uh, And uh, that work remains dear to my heart, just work. And I know the people who are doing it can make meaningful difference in the lives of the individual youth that they're supporting there. And in that experience, I also came to recognize how many of those youth were receiving services for the first time when they were 16, 17 years old. Uh, And so for many of the reasons everyone is describing this conversation, I've become an evangelist for uh, school-based early intervention. I just believe so strongly that that early recognition of need and uh, the provision of accessible quality service can make such a difference in the trajectory for kids and families where they don't end up in systems that regardless of how righteous or how good the curriculum, they just don't have great outcomes. Um, So I am incredibly heartened by the increasing uh, recognition of schools as a site where we can uh, station mental health services in the conversations and investment in things like community schools. We haven't talked a lot about funding. For us, the overwhelming majority of our work is funded by Medi-Cal, which uh, again has allowed us to serve thousands of kids uh, each year, Uh, but there are limitations. So for one, not all kids on campus have Medi-Cal. And so you have a bifurcated system between uh, commercial insurance uh, that doesn't lead or it leads to disjointed uh, services on campus. And Medi-Cal is specifically reimbursed for uh, direct provision of service to a child. And that's very important, but there also is work that we could be doing more In terms of school climate, school culture, really working with staff, teachers who are with kids a lot more than we are and with a lot more kids that I think could make profound difference. So I'm incredibly excited uh, to continue to have those conversations and innovate and evolve uh, to be even more impactful.
0: Great, great.
7: And Jenna, final thoughts.
4: Not me. Oh. I would, I already, I spoke, oh. but
7: I can give you more thoughts. I definitely have more <laughs> no, ideas. I, I'm
0: losing track of whoever, whoever I, who, who hasn't said
4: anything. It's Allison. Would Allison. you like me to
7: say Allison. something? Allison. <laughs> no, I oh, do not allowed to say
0: anything, Allison. Well, I, I was going to say after
6: what everyone else just said, um, yeah. I, I I, don't think I'm going to say anything that differently, but I'm just, I'm feeling incredibly hopeful. I've been doing school-based mental health work for over 20 years and I'm no longer having to convince administrators about trauma, and uh, and and they are coming to us and saying, "I saw this kid. I'm worried about them. I want to do things differently. How do we incorporate, you know, meditation into our morning rituals? And how do we make sure we're no no child is being um, missed? And you know, there's just a way in which." The conversations have shifted and there is now, I feel like, a a will around this that people really get the impact. Um, So I, I am heartened by that. I think some of the things Josh was talking about, we have some real limitations in what we could be doing and we need to be thinking more holistically about how do we do tier one school climate and culture supports? How do we Integrate tier two that you know someone doesn't have to be struggling so badly before they can get what they need. Um, so I feel like all the right ingredients are there, and we just have to continue to really push for what is truly a right. Mental health right. is a right.
0: Wow, thank you. Mental health is a right for kids by kids, for parents by parents. You know, mental health is health. You all have dropped what I call mad wisdom, meaning you have dropped some amazing nuggets and told us more of what maybe needs to be done for continued conversation and innovation so thank you so much for joining us today and with that i will say it is a wrap what was recovery action plan or it's a wrap we finished the uh, panel conversation today thank you so much
6: thank you karis thank you
5: thank you very much